On this episode of AvTalk, Boeing launches the 777X freighter with Qatar Airways as the launch customer. And some Ethiopian airline staff have fled the country in incredible ways, stowing away on flights to Europe and the U.S. Hello and welcome to episode 149 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rabinowitz. Hello, Ian. How's it going? Hello, Jason. Jason, I uh, things are going well. It's uh, very snowy here today, and it's uh, still coming down. It's been a day of shoveling and then working at the computer and then getting up from the computer and putting on my sweater vest and standing outside the window or standing next to the window and going, mm, really coming down out there, and then getting it's back to work. Chicago. I'm sure you'll be okay. We'll, we'll be just fine. Yes. Uh, there, there's been some shoveling. The snowblower was was broken out at some point. <laughs> I think the the funniest thing was that um, Lou, who uh, is an air traffic controller at uh, Chicago Center, posted one of the flight strips that they got. And one of the, um, I don't know if it was notumed or, or just a, a memo, but one of the plows at Midway in Chicago broke down um, the center runway. So they had to tow the snowplow off the runway before they could use it. Did they use a tug? I have no idea. I I mean, one assumes, or or they have like one of those big wreckers come in and and grab it. But I I thought that was kind of amusing. It's an unfortunate place. I, I mean, right in the middle of the the main runway, so not not great timing. But everything seems to be back up and running. Yeah. So over, I think, let's see, O'Hare has over nearly seven hundred cancellations today. So over fifty percent of flights. We had our own little blizzard in the Northeast over the, what was it, last week? Uh, no, over the weekend. Over the weekend, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, New York got about 12 inches a foot of snow. Boston got absolutely dumped on. Um, but it was okay here. It's mostly melted already. The airports here seem to do mostly okay, actually. The Port Authority did a, a great job of clearing our airports. Didn't hear much until <laughs> the following day on Sunday when JetBlue had an utter meltdown, but that that's nothing new. Yeah, I, that you said it's, it's nothing new, and, and they knew it was coming. The snow was actually forecasted to be worse than it was in, in, in New York, and then it still happened, and this is not the first time that these things have happened to them. No, I, I, we weren't planning on talking about this, but I guess we'll talk about it. Might as but, well. Uh, yeah, yeah. JetBlue has always just historically been absolutely miserable in, in recovering from any sort of significant weather event, be it hurricanes or tropical storms or in this case, blizzards. Not even a blizzard. This was just a snowstorm. But it, it was – they did the right thing leading up to it. They, they mass canceled most of – if not all of their flights in the Northeast, Boston and, and the New York area on Saturday and they plan to resume normally on Sunday like every other airline did and they just they couldn't do it. Sunday night there were flights landing at JFK that couldn't get to a gate for up to nearly 4 hours in some cases up to the length of the actual flight. And from everything I hear it was really down to a lack of communication within the airline of of how many flights they could accept and a staffing issue. They just couldn't get people in the right place to actually work the flights once they landed and that just created like a, a cascading effect of of just nothing good. Youch. Well things seem to be back on track now and, and hopefully the weather headed uh headed east keeps people on their toes, I guess. Yeah, sure. I, I they, they did one thing that was 
quite surprising. What what cued me into this whole thing in the first place was they actually had a flight cleared to land uh, on 3-1 right at JFK, who then got word from the company that, sorry, the air, uh, our terminal's a mess. We have no room for you. Go to Newark. And they actually canceled their own landing clearance at JFK and then diverted while they were already just at a couple thousand feet on approach, probably about two minutes from landing. That's not something I've seen happen before. No. I mean, good views of the city, though, for the passengers. Yeah, yeah, great. Looking, looking on the bright side of things, you, I you guess. end up at the wrong airport, but you're not stuck on the plane for four hours waiting I, for a game. I mean, yeah, it's, you have to take a different train, I guess, than only like three or four. So what we were actually going to start the show with was the launch of the 777X freighter. So Boeing is calling it the, the 777-8F as it, the, it will be a, a pure cargo freighter based on the 777-8, which is the smaller version of the 777X. That launch order goes to Qatar Airways. They placed an order for 34 of the uh, 777X freighters plus options for 16. And they also ordered, not ordered, uh, came to a memorandum of understanding with Boeing for up to 50 737 10s. So the largest variant of the 737 MAX. Jason, I, I wonder why they would need uh, up to 50 737 10s. It's anyone's guess, really. Yeah, it, nobody knows. Nobody knows. So do we want to talk about the max order first just to get it out of the way and, and then yeah, do the, the freighter? Let's, okay. talk, let's talk about the max order. And, and I'm going to read one of my tweets where I did some research to, to go through the timeline of this, uh, what led up to this order because it, it, there's a lot of back and forth. In 2011, Qatar originally ordered 50 A320neo family aircraft. That was a long time ago. Nothing really came of that order though. In 2016, Qatar orders up to 60 737 MAX 8 aircraft. In 2018, two years later, Boeing delivered the first 737 MAX to Qatar, too much fanfare in uh, Payne Field, but it was placed with Air Italy, which doesn't exist anymore. In 2020, Air Italy ceased operations. In 2020, later that year, Qatar canceled that 737 MAX order outright and shipped all of its already delivered aircraft back to, I don't know, somebody. Just a couple weeks ago in 2022, Airbus canceled Qatar's A321neo order. And just a few weeks later, here we are once again with Qatar ordering up to 5737 MAX. So this is a saga that literally spans more than a decade already. And what's interesting to me is the lead time on these orders. I feel like they were ordering airplanes and they didn't know what to do with them. And then Air, they came up with the Air Italy idea. And they're like, oh, okay, we'll just do that. And then that didn't work. And they were like, uh, forget it. Forget it. We don't take them back. But the, the original 2011 order for the 5320neo family aircraft, that was very early on for the neo line of aircraft. And I, I think it just sat around. They, they never had any firm commitments for that possibly. But in 2017, I think it was that order was actually firmed up. And here we are in 2022 with the aircraft that were – ready to come, but Airbus said, no, 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 no. But yeah, this is a, a lot of back and forth of aircraft that never, never came to be and cancellations and returns and quite the saga. And there's a decent possibility that these 737-10s will never come to be. This is only a memorandum of understanding, which I, I always forget whether or not that's better than a letter of intent 
as far as like more more firm or is that less firm than there because there's orders where you actually give people money and say I want these planes and there's letters of intent which say I want to give you money and get these planes and then there's memorandums of understanding that say I want to talk more about giving you money and I maybe want these planes at least that's my understanding but I may have those I flipped. don't know the answer to that either way we should come up with like a fourth class in trademark it or, or something and, and have that be ours. Uh, in any case, the, yeah, up to 50 of those. Then where the real money changes hands and uh, I mean, you don't get a White House signing ceremony for nothing. 34 uh, firm orders plus 16 options for the 777, 777X freighter. And the 20 of those 34 come out of Qatar's order for 60 of the 777-9 passenger aircraft. So they're down to 40 of those. 20 of those get converted to the freighter. Uh, and then the remaining 14 are, are a fresh order plus the 16 options. And that's it. It's an interesting aircraft because here, here's where it gets, gets interesting. The payload is roughly equal to the 747 freighter and you get a 25% improvement on costs. So I mean, that's a, a decent chunk of change right there. Yeah, I mean, sounds great, but let's look a little more into the details. What else do we know? So we've got a range of 4,410 nautical miles and roughly the same as 747-400 freighter, 112-ton payload. So that's an interesting thing. The other thing is that they're taking two 777 freighters now – Everyone wants freighters now, so they're ordering two current model 777 full freighters to capitalize on the, uh, what do they call, quote unquote, buoyant air cargo market. Hmm, buoyant. That's a fun mm, word. Very buoyant. So a, a very interesting airplane. It yeah, will, it's, uh, uh, it's a big boy. Uh, the wingspan <laughs> yeah. on the ground is obviously and intentionally extremely similar to the current the current freighter is 212 feet, 7 inches wide, um, or 64.8 meters. The new 777-8F is one inch wider with a one inch wider wingspan of 212 feet, 8 inches, or 64.8 meters. But when the wingtips extend, it goes up to 235 feet, 5 inches, or 71.8 meters. So it, it's quite a bit wider, not the fuselage, but the wingspan is, is quite a bit bigger um, with these extendable wingtips, which is pretty cool. I love the extendable wingtips. I, I think I still think it's so cool. But every time I think about these, I'm like, well, what happens when when one of them goes tech? What's going to happen? Do they like lock them down and then they can't pull into the gate? Do they take them to hearts? It, it's going to happen eventually. And I guess my question is, what happens then? So that'll be I interesting. Yeah, that'll the be aircraft's interesting. Also, uh, also a bit longer. The The current freighter is uh, 209 feet, one inches long. The length of the the 777X freighter is 232 feet, six inches. So it, it's quite a bit longer too. Um, interesting aircraft, but it also has um, a diminished range compared to the current generation freighter, which is an interesting decision. Yeah, I, I think the the volume or the, the payload versus range trade-offs here are 
are an interesting one and and to see whether or not but by the same token it has an increased range over the 747 400 which it's kind of replacing that is true unfortunately um it will not be a true replacement for the 74400 freighter which had the nose door what what would you call that yeah the the folding nose door so i mean that's i mean that's the that's the big question i mean go how long because you're you're going to need aircraft with a a way to load those extremely large long pieces so the 747 freighter is not going away anytime soon anytime soon no and we've talked about this before on on the podcast and the necessity of that door i mean to move long bulky awkward cargo is so key and how they how they get around that when eventually the 747 freighter fleet including the dash 8s goes away i mean that'll be interesting but we could be talking about you know, decades. Well, we're definitely talking about decades, but we, I mean, we could be talking two, three generations of, of aircraft design later. So I, I think that's going to be an interesting problem to solve and, and see what the, the freighter of the future uh, or freighter of the future of the future looks like. So that'll be something to think about. Yeah. Yeah. The family lineup on, on the Boeing website of their freighters is, is really quite interesting when you look at it left to right. They, it goes all the way from the little 737 freighter and the, the BCF the converted freighters, the 7.6 again converted, and then you get the dedicated freighters and it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger until you get to the 747. It's uh, quite the family Boeing has in the freighter division. Yeah. I mean, it, the growth that, that we've talked about over the the past couple of years, especially with the the rise of consumer the amazonification of freight where you're looking at short delivery times and things like that where the the 737 800 especially has become a great platform and the a321 has started to to really take off as far as converted freighters go i mean i i think that's really interesting to to see how much of that continues versus how these large large freighters fare you know is in terms of usage and and where they're used but it'll be really interesting to see who else picks up the 777X freighter. So Qatar being a launch customer, that'll be interesting. They like to be a launch customer, but sometimes they don't. You know, they they've they've said we want to take things first before, and then we'll see that if that ends up happening. But it'll be interesting to see who else decides that the 777X freighter is for them versus the A350 freighter. Yep. And Qatar is going to like being first up because historically speaking, whoever, whichever airline launches the the air the aircraft type or orders it very early on, they get a say in, in the specifications of that aircraft. And it it doesn't get tailor made to them, but they definitely have an outsized influence on what the final product is. So maybe this is exactly the specs Qatar wanted. I maybe maybe. Akbar gets what Akbar wants, so except if it's an Airbus A three twenty Neo family aircraft. Uh, yeah, so we'll check back in on that one later. We've got Ethiopian Airlines resuming seven three seven Max service this week. We it's Wednesday the second of February. We thought it was going to be today. It was in the schedule for today. They said it was going to be today. Then it wasn't today. 
So by the time the podcast comes out, hopefully it was yesterday, which would be Thursday. Uh, we'll see if they put the aircraft back into service. Who knows? <laughs> you got that? Yeah, it was, it was such a weird thing. Like they made this, they had the... So what's interesting to me is that initially Ethiopian said, we're going to be last. They are not last. They're not even close to last to put it back in. Yeah, they they said we're we're going to be last. Absolutely, we're going to be last. We're going to be the last airline to put the seven three seven Max back into service. After every other airline does it, that's going to be us. That's not the case, as Jason says. Not even close to being the case. But they yesterday on Tuesday, the first of February, they conducted a, a publicity flight with, I believe, there was representatives from the airline uh, from Boeing. I think. Yeah, Boeing, uh, the government dignitaries, they had their own executives on board. Yeah, Yeah. everything. Uh, And then they were supposed to put the aircraft into commercial service today and and did not. So who knows what the deal is there, but hopefully they they get that going. That's the... That's nothing. (laughs) That's not the Ethiopian Airlines story that, that we really wanted to talk about this week. CNN had an article this week on Ethiopian Airlines staff members of that were either born or, or have ethnic Tigrayan descent working for the airline have, have faced kind of persecution and their families have been targeted w- within the, the conflict that is currently happening in Tigray in Ethiopia. Multiple staff members from Ethiopian Airlines have fled the country inside Ethiopian Airlines planes. In one instance, a pair hid in the bulk cargo area of the A350 that was carrying flowers to Brussels. And in a second incident, which is absolutely bonkers, two maintenance technicians concealed themselves above the crew rest compartment in a 777. Huh. This is one of the uh, 777s that was converted to a COVID combi, I think, was it? I think so, but I'm not I'm not exactly sure. But but either way, it, it's still a, a passenger passenger 777 that from the cabin crew rest compartment, which is in the middle of the aircraft and sits above the the passenger cabin. Uh, so you take a, a small set of stairs up, and it's uh, basically a cotted area that that has I think the triple seven has room for six or eight crew members in in the cabin crew rest area, and they're basically like bunks with little storage tiny storage compartments, and you can pull the pull little curtains and and sleep up there. They widened a maintenance access panel, so there's a maintenance access panel in the the crew rest area that gets you into the the area between the aircrafts outer outer wall and this this crew rest area and they widened that so that they could crawl through there into the area outside the cabin crew rest area but still up in the ceiling and hid in there for 36 hours because the flight went from from Addis to to Lagos Nigeria then to Dublin and then to Washington DC that's quite the ride. Um, 36 hours up there. I mean, at least it was, you know, probably all things considered a comfortable ride. And by comfortable, I mean pressurized and not freezing. So that's that's good. Um, but wow, that's that's intense. I mean, it, the most 
bonkers thing to me about all of this is that the U.S. Customs and Border Patrol cited Ethiopian Airlines for lax security protocols. I mean, that doesn't seem fair. <laughs> like, not that it doesn't. I don't know. If fair is the right word. It was just like that. It was like a. Like a working through the motions of you have staff that are are stowing away an aircraft to escape, you know, persecution. Oh, and by the way, we're we're going to fine you. And it's just that a, a weird kind of a side to the story. But yeah, just the desperation to hatch this plan and then hide inside basically the skin of the between the skin of the aircraft and all of the the air duct work and just be there for a day and a half they felt they need to do it they felt they were being persecuted and in fear of their life and here they are now in the u.s i don't know what their fate will be the article says they were detained by u.s uh homeland security before being transferred to cbp uh, customs and border protection i guess if they're seeking asylum they're they're here and hopefully it'll be granted um it, Unclear what happens at this point, but yeah, thankfully they made it here in, in one piece, safe and sound. But wow, that's a that's a story. Yeah, and the the pair that hid in the A three fifty cargo area, they have been granted uh, asylum in in Belgium. So they're um, they they've already received permission to to stay in in Belgium. Uh, so just a terrible situation. To see the the desperation of people finding ways to to escape that that situation, some really harrowing stuff, and uh, we'll we'll put a link to the the full the full article in the show notes because it's it's worth reading worth reading in full. Jason, let's take a, a quick break and regroup ourselves, and then we'll come talk about hopefully for the last time we will discuss the US 5G C-band deployment, because I know I'm tired of it. I know you're tired of it. And dear listener, we know you're tired of it. Uh, so hopefully it'll be the last time we talk about it. We'll be right back. Welcome back. It is now time for our weekly discussion of things that we should have never had to have talked about in the first place. Welcome back to our topic 5G C-band deployment in the US, a subtitled, nobody did their homework and everyone's upset. And hopefully this is the last time. What? Hold on. Let me check my phone. Nope. Nope. I, I still don't have the signal. It's still not here. I, I demand a refund for the last two weeks. <laughs> that's that's the thing. Like every, uh, my phone? No, I don't. I, don't, I haven't got it. I don't know. So last week we talked about the additional uh, AMOX and all of that good fun stuff. None of that has really changed except to say that they've been extended. Regional airlines are still entirely unhappy because they feel they've been left out in the cold, which I mean, really they have. But 90% of the US fleet is covered. Late last week, the FAA and the telecom companies, Verizon and AT&T, came to an agreement. And the statement from the FAA I, I won't read the whole thing, but it basically reads as if all of the things that they agreed to on the 28th of January, 2022 could have been worked out at any point in the two years prior to the launch of the C-band. Yeah. 
It, that didn't happen. <laughs> At any point, none of these none of these seem like they're insurmountable. None of these agreements see like let's see, provided more precise data about exact location of wires transmitters, more thorough analysis of how 5B, 5G C-band signals interact with sensitive aircraft instruments. Those things seem like they could have been done at any point. Could have and should have, and probably should have even started when they first announced that they were going to delay the rollout from, what was it, December 19th, where that, that they didn't do anything until the, the new date in January. Lots of things went wrong, and there is actually a uh, – I think it's a congressional hearing on this tomorrow. Yes, indeed. The, the subcommittee on aviation hearing on, quote, finding the right frequency, 5G development and aviation safety. Um, just off on the Twitters from David Shepardson, we have the prepared statements from the Honorable Peter DeFazio, who is the Democratic chair of the – Aviation uh, Subcommittee. Aviation Subcommittee. And I quote here, if the events of the last two months have taught us anything, it's that the current interagency process for auctioning off spectrum is completely broken. My colleagues and I watched in complete dismay as the deployment of 5G originally proceeded without any of the safety mitigations the FCC, sorry, the FAA, aviation industry, and I have long called for. This resulted in disorienting display of 5G fits and starts over the last several months, inevitably due to the FCC auctioning off 5G spectrum without any concrete plan in place to safely deploy these technologies without interfering with aviation. He continues to say, but it did not have to be this way. Yes, the Honorable Peter A. DeFazio, I agree. The FAA should have done its freaking homework months or years ago. The process, I don't see how the FCC is to blame for auctioning off the spectrum. It's, in my eyes, completely on the FAA and the aviation industry for not doing a damn thing until its homework was due. And then they asked for an extension, and then they asked for another extension, and then they asked for buffer zones, and then nobody's happy. He is right to say that the interagency process is completely broken, but they didn't even invite the FCC to this congressional hearing, which is right there on its face. Isn't that fundamentally broken? I'm still laughing about the title of Finding the Right Frequency. Ah, they made a joke. Uh, I think we can both agree, or, or, or perhaps all agree, dear listeners, that congressional hearings are rarely about actually finding an answer to a problem and more about whoever's testifying getting a chance to, to grandstand or whoever's being testified to uh, getting getting a chance somebody to on that hearing is going to complain about their flight being delayed last october or something and ask was that because of 5g i guarantee it i mean that's not a bet i'm going to take because you're right i mean you're you're 100 right so no i i'm not that's that that is not a bet i'm going to take but is the fcc blameless no probably no. not. no is the FAA an organization that seems to not have wanted to do anything and then got very upset when they were asked to do something? I think that's the case here. And feel free to email us at podcast.fr24.com if you have a different take because I'm seriously trying to understand why this took as long as it did and then why the answer was so simple. 
I mean, I guess that's that's what bothers me. Like, if we had gotten to the point where where the FAA was coming out and saying, "Okay, we're we're trying all these tests. The test, you know, things it's inconclusive. It's not working. Parts of it work. Parts of it don't. It depends on the weather. It depends on the terrain. And we've got all of these mitigations in process." You know, if that was the issue, if if it only affected certain altimeters on certain times and certain days of the week. Then, then that would make sense to me how this was so difficult to do. But all of this sounds like they told us where the towers were. They told us the the amount of power that's going into the towers, and we said, okay, that's fine now. Yep, yep. Also, on top of that, they they haven't even really cleared any general aviation or helicopter altimeter radio altimeters, as far as we can tell. So there's a huge chunk of the aviation system that just is kind of in limbo right now. Well, yes, but are there that many Cessnas doing ILS approaches or, you know, Cessna, Cessna 152s? Maybe. Probably not. No. <laughs> Let this be the last time we talk about 5G unless something dramatic happens like, I don't know, the FAA says, oh, we talked to the FCC, everything's fine now. But we'll we'll see what happens there. Uh, we'll put a link to the show notes in the show notes to the testimony that will have already happened by the time the podcast comes out, so that you can follow along with that if you're a, a glutton for punishment. In other order news, American Airlines has decided that they need thirty additional seven three seven Max eights. They have also decided that they don't need the 787s that they have on order for a while now. They've deferred deliveries of 787s, assuming Boeing can restart deliveries of the 787s. Uh, they've deferred those deliveries back to the fourth quarter of 2023 and through 2027. So they, they pushed them back and slowed them down. Now, was that a, a later batch of deliveries? Because they were quite vocal recently that they had to trim back their... 2022 summer schedule because Boeing couldn't deliver. Um, so is, are all of those aircraft just pushed back or is that a, a later set? You know what? That's a really good question. I do not know exactly where in the delivery slots all of those aircraft were coming from. But the initial pass that I read on the order book pushed everything back. Very but odd. I'll have to, to go back to, the, back to the 8K. But really what it shakes out as we need more domestic capacity and we don't need as much international capacity, which tracks with, well, yeah, that, that everything. <laughs> so an interesting order coming a good time for, for Boeing as they continue to kind of um, chip into – or not chip into, but it add on to their, their max order book. Um, so, so good for them. I really hope they figure out this 787 business soon. Yeah, are figure it out and then start fixing the aircraft that yeah. it has yeah. sitting around, which seems like it's going to take a while. Yeah, that 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 too. So an interesting thing, also I believe first reported by Dave Shepardson over at Reuters, it is indeed the FAA released guidance today or released proposed guidance today for training revisions to prevent pilots from overly relying on autopilot and ensuring that they are focused on proper flight path management. So to quote the FAA, pilots should always be aware of the aircraft's flight path so they can intervene if necessary. And and these revised guidelines or proposed guideline revisions come out of two things. One, the uh, 2013 Asiana flight 214 that the 
autothrust rolled back. The pilots didn't catch it. The aircraft lost speed and the aircraft struck the seawall on approach to San Francisco. That was the Asiana 777 in 2013. So that was the first incident and the National Transportation Safety Board recommended a set of uh, a set of things that the FAA should adopt. And then the other part of that comes out of Congress's mandated response to the 737 MAX crashes. So that coming together, the FAA took both of those things and, and finally issued guidance. The fact that what's interesting to me is that the NTSB issued these recommendations not long after, you know, as part of their their crash report. So about a year after the crash in San Francisco, no action whatsoever on the FAA's part. Congress in 2019 says, "Okay, now it's time to to get together." The FAA, you know, starts doing things, which it's, it's just. I mean, I know when we talked with Sean Payne, the NTSB investigator, about this, where um, you know he's like, "Well, we 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 can't mandate anything. We can only recommend things, and then governments, uh, regulators need to to act on those." And that's just got to be so frustrating to be an NTSB investigator saying we can fix the problem if somebody would tell you know somebody to fix the problem. Yeah, better late than never, I guess. But this always seems like a constant battle between the NTSB and not just the FAA, but any no, other any any modal any, regulator. Even when it comes down to like gas pipelines, the, the NTSB has uh, jurisdiction over. So it, it's not an FAA specific thing, but man, that's a long time since the Asiana, the San Francisco crash. Yeah, when I when I was first reading this article, I I was like, oh wow, I I can't believe it was that long ago. So yeah, almost almost 10 years now. Jason, you brought this one to my attention. There was some news regarding you know, investigative reports. There was some news about the Norwegian 787 uh, from a few years ago in Rome. Yeah. You may remember, and I'm sure we've talked about on the podcast, one of Norwegian's Rome-based 787-8s, one of the uh, Dash 8s that never had much luck with that particular airline or with those particular engines, lost a couple flat fan blades and, and spilled them out over uh, Rome after it departed from runway 10R. And Flight Global has a, an update on that. Some 32 seconds after taking off, the 787 suffered uh, initial failure just over 1,000 feet on departure. It was actually found that uh, this aircraft with its Trent 1000 Package B engines, which were not widely known as being that great, had some issues that they say the, the fan blade failed at 1,210 cycles, still 200 cycles below its life limit imposed by uh, the European Union Aviation Safety Indus uh, Agency, not industry, where is it that they also had quite a few other issues within that engine as 92 blades in the aircraft's right-hand engine also had cracks. 84 similar blades in the left-hand engine were also cracked. I'm not sure if it's clear if they were cracked before or after the failure, but that's a lot of issues on the two engines on that one particular aircraft, which has not flown since uh, it was ferried out of Rome to where did it go again? Ian went to Prestwick. There it goes. Yeah, it's been there ever since. It is currently engineless and well, airlineless now since Norwegian doesn't operate seven eight sevens anymore. 
So that's uh, a little update from something that feels like ancient history. Yeah. That, so the episode that we talked to, this is episode 149. Uh, the episode that we talked about that was episode 64, way wow. back, way back in August of 2019, which feels like 50 years ago. Yeah. The article goes on to say that 10 similar cases of intermediate pressure turbine blade detachments uh, happened before the Rome incident occurred in 2015. But this issue is well known. There are all sorts of uh, surface bulletins and all that to get this uh, remedied. I, I don't think any of these engines are still flying around with pre-modification blades. I, I doubt it. Yeah. I mean, by now, yeah, by I, now I, would, yeah. I would be surprised to to see anything. Shall we dive into this? Uh yeah, I don't like it. <laughs> Iceland Air released or painted its first aircraft in its new livery last week. And we got a look at it. And Jason and I don't particularly care for it. They are now a subsidiary of United Airlines, apparently. <laughs> I don't mind the billboard titles. And and we'll we'll put a, a link to the to the aircrafts in, in the show notes so that anyone following along can or anyone at home can can follow along. I don't mind the billboard titles. I just everything else is so blah blah. It, it, I made the comment on Twitter that it the it's designed by you know the accounting and finance department and and somebody said, "Are you calling accountant accountants and and finance people boring?" and that wasn't my intent at all. I, I was speaking purely from a, a financial perspective where most of the aircraft is white. Yeah. And there's a, a splash of color on the tail, a little strip that is different colors depending on the aircraft. But it, it's just – I really like the current well, – I guess the previous Iceland Air livery. I just thought it's really, really classy, really nice. The engines are blue. The engines aren't even blue anymore. Iceland to me – has such a distinct as a country has such wait, a distinct wait, identity. Wait, wait, I have to correct myself before we yeah, get I hate gonna, mail. I was going to let yellow, you do that. Yellow, yellow. The belly is blue. <laughs> the engines are yellow. The engines are no longer yellow, and that is a travesty. Continue. <laughs> but Iceland as a country has such a distinctive identity. You'd think that they'd want to have a distinctive identity for the airline. Before anyone talk, well, they have a, a splash of color on. No, that's goofy yeah and make and make the livery and and i will counterpoint myself here uh i believe brett schneider over at cranku fire said no one cares that's also possibly true as long as the fare is cheap nobody gives a damn but but, but also, this podcast is about aviation and, and so exactly. i'm going to care also pointed out on twitter now that we've I've corrected myself that the engines are yellow. Yellow seems like a doomed color these days for aircraft deliveries. We have Iceland Air removed all the yellow. Lufthansa just a few years ago removed all the yellow from its livery. Uh, who else has removed yellow? I, I don't have the list up in front of me, but it's, it's a weird thing happening where yellow is just banned from airplane liveries. Well, Spirit bought up all the yellow paint. Oh, that's right. When they eventually finished repainting their fleet to all yellow in 20 never. I think Spirit still has, what, four liveries? At least. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so I no, I, I, don't, I don't have a list of airlines that have, have ditched yellow paint. That is a, a niche list that we should certainly – that sounds like a good blog post. Yeah. United uh, apparently had yellow. When did United have yellow in the livery? I mean, I guess goldish. 
No. Goldish, yeah, gold. Yeah, not really yellow. A variation of yellow. Yeah, maybe. We're, we're going to get hate mail from graphic designers, which is entirely deserved. But yeah, it, it's there. It's a. It, it looks like an airplane. It. I mean, it, fine. It, yeah, it's fine. It's fine. I, I mean, I'll I'll fly him. I'll go to Iceland, but I'm going to be you know salty about delivery. Okay, two things before we go. One is a document from which this is going to be a fun with acronyms. I'm not going to give any of the, the meanings of the acronyms. We'll just have to go through it. This was, Jason, you found this from an IATA press release about a UACA decision about Janus. Hey, you, you heard that right. Uh, we and had to read this document. <laughs> the, both of us read it about five times before we figured out what the hell they were trying to say. But it is in relation to the uh, justified non-use of slots. That's what that acronym translates to, which is basically there's been a lot of hubbub in Europe over uh, ghost flights, basically, that airlines are having to operate flights that are com- nearly or completely empty in, uh, throughout Europe to maintain their slot slots slots i guess at at european airports there is the slot allocation is the word i was looking for so they were basically regulated to the point where they had to operate these flights whether or not anyone was interested in flying and it's not uh not a good look for an industry that's trying to be more eco-friendly to operate flights no one on it simply because somebody told them they can't not operate the flights but this document seems to lay out the framework for when an airline can cancel those flights and not run up against the justified non-use of slot issue, it seems like a list of stuff that's probably not going to happen. Things like uh, a quarantine requirement for all passengers, unless they can be avoided by a COVID-19 test or proof of recovery. No one's really doing that in Europe at this point. In the case that only essential travel is allowed, we haven't really seen that in quite a while. Outright travel bans, curfews, lockdowns at either end of the route, but none of this is stuff that's really a lever an airline can pull and say, next summer, uh, summer 2023, we're going to pare back our, our summer schedule. This seems like more of things that are happening imminently that they can pare back their flights, but it's apparently enough to satisfy IATA, who issued a rare press release where they're happy about a thing that happened. <laughs> there was a positive quotation from Willie Walsh, or a, a positive quotation attributed to Willie Walsh, clearly written by either a PR flack or a lawyer. Or robot. Or entirely possible. Either way, interesting development and, and a positive development as far as a reduction in unnecessary flying, we hope. Who knows if that'll actually happen or if there's just some some legal cover here for somebody else. We will close the show with someone at least as nerdy as us, maybe nerdier, and I mean that in the best way possible. Last episode, Jason, you did something I didn't know was possible. Recap what happened for us. Well, there's uh, a blinky light on the top of a radio tower that I can see out my living room window that recently stopped blinking or, or sometimes now blinks, sometimes flickers, sometimes does weird things, and I wanted to tell somebody about it. So I called the FAA and said, hey, this thing's not working right. And they issued a notum very, very quickly. One of our dear listeners actually took the time to look up that notum 
So I, I guess he plugged in the uh, airport code for the downtown Manhattan heliport, KJRB, which then returned the notum, which contained the ASR of said radio tower. Then he took that number and then Googled it and came up with an FCC or FAA violation from April 11th, 2007 in which the District Director, New York Office, Northeast Region Enforcement Bureau found that the city of New York had not properly labeled the tower at its base and they could not find the plaque basically saying the uh, registration number for the tower. So this tower apparently has had uh, inspection issues in the past and I just think it's hilarious that someone would... uh, Put all those pieces together and then send it to us. I'm thankful for that. It's funny. And I will keep you updated on the the blinkingness of this obstruction light. And hopefully it is back and blinking and everyone in downtown Brooklyn can see it again soon. (laughs) I absolutely love it. So thank you for looking that up and sending it to us. That was absolutely fantastic. If you are so moved by anything else we've talked about and, and feel the need to, to dig into anything further and you find something that you think is interesting, by all means, uh, email us at podcast at fr24.com. We l- absolutely love stuff like this. Uh, this podcast is a labor of love for both of us. So hearing people you know, get some enjoyment and then dig even deeper into it is always a great thing. We'll leave it there for episode 149 of AvTalk. 150 is coming up next week. We, we should probably figure out what's going on. Yeah, we'll we'll probably take one out of the FCC's book and just not think about it until the night before it's due. (laughs) Sounds good. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rabinowitz. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.